hear stories from the life of Christ, it can be easy to miss the full picture. We can carry a mental image of the baby Jesus born in a manger, but can barely begin to comprehend the reality that His life is the point at which all of human history is divided. It's easy to think of Christ as a loving shepherd, but can sometimes be hard to remember He is also the King of Kings. In the Gospels, we see that Christ gave more than was asked, chose compassion over culture, placed love before the law, valued potential over a filthy past, and exhibited servitude instead of standing on His sovereignty. Pause for a moment. Think what it would be like to walk just a few steps in His shoes, to live your life like He lived His. It's simple, really. All of His actions were based on two simple principles, love God and love people. Everything Christ did, every action that is recorded, every step that He took as He strode bravely towards the cross were based on these two simple principles. It's not easy, but it is the simple gospel. Well, it's so good to be with you today. I want to give a big shout out to those of you right now uh, tuning in from our West Campus, or maybe you're tuning in right now online in some way. We're glad that you've joined us as we continue the series we kicked off last weekend called The Simple Gospel. Now, this past week, I read about a well-known professor that gives his new students a, a test on the very first day of every semester. It's the same test he gives every single year. Now, this test, you have to understand, is divided into two different sections. And, and the point of this questionnaire is for him to assess any kind of preconceived beliefs or notions that his students have about Jesus. And so the first section is um, filled with simple questions like, you know, is Jesus moody? Uh, is Jesus uh, an introvert or extrovert? Is he the life of the party? Uh, what, what kind of person was he? Who, who do you think Jesus is? Now, the second section uh, takes a drastic turn, and this section is all about who you are. Okay, so the students then fill out uh, different questions about their personalities, experiences, or maybe biases that they uh, have, or whatever it is that they bring to the table, okay? Now, the reason why these two different uh, sections are put together in, in this test is because there's always this parallel that is revealed. And no matter who's taking this quiz, no matter who's taking this questionnaire, there's always this common similar pattern that is manifested in the results. And, and that pattern goes like this, okay? Jesus is just like the person who's taking the test. It, it, it's true, and the professor realizes that, you know, we tend to view our personalities, our experiences, or maybe our biases in life through the lens of ourselves. We view Jesus through that lens. And, and so the problem is, all right, rather than seeing Jesus for who he really is and what he offers, we end up seeing a very limited version of him based upon what we've gone through in life or some preconceived beliefs that we already bring to the table, and I suspect that this is probably true for all of us if we think about it. Now, you might be a rather caring person naturally, and, and so you might find yourself drawn to the moments whenever Jesus would show compassion towards people who needed compassion, or, or maybe you love conflict, you're that person, and so you love it when Jesus walked into the temple, flipped over the tables, and, and started talking rather uh, harshly to the religious leaders. And whatever that is for you, the problem comes down to this. Rather than us becoming more like Jesus, we end up making Jesus more like us. And you see, the more we follow Jesus, though, the, 
the more it'll be uncomfortable at times. The more, the more it'll feel a little bit invasive. He'll get rather personal with, with this part of our life that we've tried keeping off limits. And so if there isn't, if there isn't this moment where you disagree with Jesus or it doesn't feel, un, it, it's uncomfortable, then the question you have to ask yourself is, are you following Jesus or are you following a very limited version of him? Author uh, Tim Keller said it like this, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping, <clears throat> excuse me, an idealized version of yourself. All right, so throughout this series, what we've been doing is we've been looking at different encounters Jesus had with, with people, and, and we've been kind of confronting our natural ability to limit who Jesus is. And let me give you this example, okay? Whenever I say the word gospel, in the church, we tend to reduce it down to that moment when Jesus died for us and in turn offers us eternal life. Now, that's certainly part of the gospel, but that's, that's only really the start. Because Jesus not only died and, and came back to life and defeated death to, to save us from eternity, but also so that heaven could become reality in this life. And, and so we've been defining the simple gospel like this. A simple gospel is about experiencing the next life in this life. I mean, besides, why in the world would you want to follow a God who only is relevant to you after your funeral, right? No, God is much bigger and stronger than that. And, and Jesus has an ability to, to let us experience the next life in this life. Heaven isn't something that we have to wait on. That, that is the full gospel. And so we're going to uh, pick up with the story today as we learn what it really looks like to experience the next life in this life. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the book of John. Okay, if you don't own a Bible, there should be a black one either right in front of you or in the seat below you. And uh, John can be found towards the back of your Bibles. It goes like this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, okay? And uh, we're going to be in chapter four today. Now, as you're turning there, understand that, that John is uh, kind of like a biography about Jesus, okay? When, when we open up this book, we see different real-life encounters Jesus had with people. And, and John was a close friend of Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He knew him perhaps better than, than just about anyone. And, and so John pieced together this narrative explaining who Jesus really is. All right, so putting aside our uh, preconceived beliefs or, or maybe our own biases, John says, hey, th this is the real Jesus. And, and when you get to know the real Jesus, then you can experience the simple gospel. And so in chapter four, when we pick up in verse four, we're, we're gonna see and read about a story that in the first century world was just rather shocking. All right, check out what we read. Verse four of John four. Now he had to go through Samaria, Jesus. Okay, so he's on this trip with his closest followers. And so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. All right, that's relevant detail, but, but let's stop right there for a moment. All right, why did John say that Jesus and his buddies had to go through Samaria? Why did it feel like they, they were compelled to go, go through Samaria? Well, you see, every good first century Jew, when they made this journey, would have gone out of their way to have avoided Samaria. It would have added a lot extra time onto their journey. It would have been an inconvenience, but that didn't matter because walking through Samaria meant encountering some people that they just did not like. Right? The Jewish people despised the Samaritans. 
You see, several generations before the, the Israelites were taken captive by the Assyrians in this part of their land, and, and so immigrants started moving to the area of Samaria, and pretty soon the Jews started intermarrying with the, the foreigners, and this was against the Jewish law at the time because it, it defiled their, ra- their race. And, and so Jewish purists saw the Samaritans as disrespectful towards their religion that they had just put aside their tradition. And so they had justified their racism. Catch this, they justified their racism by claiming it had tarnished what God had obviously set apart as pure and, and holy. And you see, racism is nothing but an ignorant form of pride that assaults our creator God who has made all people in his image. You see, every ethnicity, every heritage and person can show us another side of our creator God who has made all people in his image. And so when we avoid certain people, when we don't like this kind of person because they may look different than us, we're really neglecting our ability or even an experience to know God more completely because that person can tell us something about who God is since they are made by God. And so by walking through Samaria, Jesus confronted some racial and religious barriers. We're going to pick up on this. Look at verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food at Schnucks. All right, so they're there, and Jesus is, is all by himself. And it's noon. Now, that's a relevant detail. Why did John say that it was noon? Well, you have to understand that in this desert climate, nobody would retrieve water at noon. All right, that's when the sun was the most intense and carrying water back to your home was a heavy, tedious task. You would no, no doubt sweat as you were doing this. And, and so what you would do back then is, is you would retrieve water either in the early morning or in the late evening when the sun wasn't out. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't as hot. But, but here in this moment, we see this woman going to the well at noon. And that tells us that she was defined by her shame. Now she, she didn't want to bump into anybody. She avoided the crowds. She didn't want to face the, the glares that she would get. She didn't want to hear people whispering about her as she passed. People would inevitably notice that she started to gain weight and then they would realize that she's pregnant again. She, she didn't want to have a face-to-face confrontation with, with that guy that she had slept with because you know he was married to so-and-so. And, and so what she did was she went at noon hoping that, that she wouldn't bump into anybody because they were inside at this time. It was too hot for anybody to be outside. But to her surprise, when she gets to the well, there's this guy there and it catches her off guard you see she knew that she was under judgment she she just didn't need to be reminded of it and doesn't that describe a lot of our stories and maybe that's why a lot of us have avoided church for so long look at verse 9 the Samaritan woman said to him you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman how can you ask me for a drink this is backwards for Jews do not associate with Samaritans John clarifies that Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. All right, so right here, she's totally caught off guard because Jesus seemed oblivious to the racial, religious, and even gender prejudices of their day. Jesus' way of of pursuing her in the midst of her mess was by asking her for a drink. Now realize, he didn't bring his cup with him, okay? Jesus left his Yeti at home, right? He doesn't have a cup to to, to drink from, and and so we know in this moment, he's gonna drink from her cup. Why is that significant? 
Well, he was going to drink from her cup. Now, this was a very despicable act because not only would a man not associate with a woman in public back then, but to actually share a cup with a woman, it's one thing to do that, I guess, behind closed doors, but out in public for other people to see. Are you kidding me? Why would Jesus do that? You see, this symbolized the oneness that he was going to offer her by what's about to take place. It symbolized this this unity that Jesus was going to put right before and say, hey, I can show you a better way. All right, this scene contrasts a conversation that Jesus had with a religious leader named Nicodemus in the chapter before in John chapter 3. John put these two stories beside each other to show us how religious insiders are really no better than, than outsiders, all right? Nicodemus spent most of his life devoted to, to obeying God. A few people were better at obeying the rules than, than Nicodemus. Okay, he knew his scripture well. He had his Bethmore Bible studies down pat, all right? Even when it snowed outside, you could count on him showing up at church. He had every verse on his refrigerator, the magnet, okay? Every bookmark. He even had the fish on the back of his chariot. He was nailing it from all appearance, Okay? He earned every Bible buck. I mean, this guy was like Patton when he walked to church. He had all of his medals parading uh, as he walked through the streets. He wanted people to know how much he had obtained and he wanted to impress people by his knowledge and his religious superiority, okay? But then you have this woman in John chapter four She's at this well and she's evidently been shunned by culture. Her life is a mess and and a disgrace, all right? Yet Jesus essentially had the same conversation with her that he had with Nicodemus in John chapter three. But one difference is this. Jesus' approach was different. All right, the metaphor that that Jesus used for um, when talking to Nicodemus to expose his need for salvation was by calling him to be born again. You've probably heard that phrase before, to be born again. What in the world does that really mean, though? Well, this was Jesus' way of telling Nicodemus, hey, you didn't do anything to earn your birth. You didn't do anything to earn your right to become a child of God. Your accomplishments, your accolades, all that, it doesn't save you. And so this was a little bit offensive to Nicodemus because he had found his identity and worth wrapped up into these things. And, and so that tells us that there's nothing that we can do in order to be saved. There's nothing that we can do in order to earn the right to be born again. All right, let's, let's imagine for just a second that uh, one of your kids is in this stage of being really defiant. Okay, everything that you say to do, he does the opposite. You sit down at dinner, he takes food, he throws it at the wall, he screams at you. I mean, he's just the spawn of Satan, okay? Do, do you know what you call that? Having a two-year-old, right? And if you've had a two-year-old, you, you know what that's like. Well, well imagine that, that he gets a little bit older and so finally you decide to get to the root of the issue. He doesn't wanna be at home. He, he wants to run from you. He wants to be on his own. And so you, you sit him down and just ask him why. All right, can you imagine how crazy and surprised you would be if, if when you asked him why he'd been acting this way, he, he says to you, well, you know what? You've never thanked me for all that I did when you were pregnant with me. All right, I, I earned the right to be born into this world. All right, you, you've never thanked me for, for choosing you to be my mom. Like, how crazy is that? Or you would wonder, okay, check, check him into some counseling center. I mean, this guy's crazy, right? We wouldn't think in terms of that. Why? Because when we're born, we before do nothing to deserve it, nothing to, to earn it. 
And that's the point that Jesus is making, that there's nothing that we can do to earn our right to to be born again. And so Jesus told Nicodemus, it's impossible. You you just can't do it. The simple gospel, on the other hand, tells us that we can be saved by by grace alone. It is an act of God of him putting his favor upon us. It's nothing that we do to deserve it, but it's all all about what Jesus did. And so the point that, that John is trying to drive home here, all right, goes like this. Regardless of who you are, outsiders in the kingdom of God can become insiders. Outsiders can become insiders in the kingdom of God. You see, by paralleling these two stories back to back, all right, we learn something really offensive, and yet it's at the essence of the simple gospel. It goes like this. Listen up, okay? Pimps, prostitutes, addicts, strippers, gamblers, tax collectors, adulterers, murderers, abusers, and drunkards are as equally lost as religious insiders who count on their works and obedience to save them. What? That doesn't make sense. You see, the essence of sin, when you get down to it, is trusting in someone else or something else to save you besides grace, besides Jesus. And we all drift towards wanting to be our own God in life, and we do this in different ways. You can reject Jesus by living a very rebellious lifestyle and running as far away from God as you possibly can. That's one way to reject God. The other way to reject God is by keeping all of his rules, by obeying everything, and then holding it against him, believing that, that you're special, that you have special favors, and, and you're, you're the precious child. That's why it's totally possible for us to attend church our entire life, yet never be saved. It's possible to be raised in church, but not raised in Christ. And this is tricky for us. Do you know why? Because those of us who identify more with Nicodemus than the Samaritan woman rarely know it. You point to something that you did, and oh, that, that, that shows that, that, I'm, that I'm saved. And you might be more like Nicodemus if, if you could confuse knowing Jesus for just knowing about Jesus. You might be more like Nicodemus if you say, well, I I know God based upon, look look at my church attendance history. Look at all these studies that I've accomplished. Look at all that I'm involved in. Look at how I've served here and there. You you might be there. You might be Nicodemus if if you say, well, I'm saved. God God loves me. I'm I'm gonna make it one day because my mom and dad were religious. They raised me in a Christian home. And yet one of the worst things that could possibly happen is to, Walk through your entire life believing that you're a part of the kingdom, believing that you're an insider when you've been an outsider the whole time. Throughout their conversation, Jesus used her bodily thirst to reveal her, her spiritual need. Pick up in verse 15 and, and notice right, her curiosity. <clears throat> the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And so Jesus told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Have you been stalking me on Facebook? Jesus said to her, you were right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. Okay, keep track of this. And the man that you now have, six, is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. All right, so her story, whether you see it or not, is really our story. She kept running after what she wanted, only to feel emptier than ever before. And fill in the blank for for how this goes for you. 
when we've all told ourselves, you know, I'll finally feel satisfied, I'll finally feel complete once I get the promotion or, or once I have this kind of portfolio set aside for retirement, I'll finally be complete once, once I get pregnant or once I graduate, once I meet that special somebody, I'll finally feel complete once my kids start having grandkids. What, what, what is that for you? Once I get the kitchen remodeled, once I finally buy the boat. What, but you see, when we have more and we arrive at whatever it is that we're desiring and wanting, we get to this place where we realize, you know what, more is just not enough, is it? Back in January, my wife Savannah went to Texas for a few days with her friends uh, to hang out with some of her friends down there. And she went down with her mom and, and sister. And so she left uh, all the kids with me, which you know, is a dangerous thing in itself, but we had an awesome time, okay? Now, if you know me, you know that I just love animals and I'm a sucker for pets, all right? At the time, we only had two dogs and one cat, okay? Now, my kids had been wanting a second cat up until that point for a really long time. Savannah wasn't there to kind of veto it. And uh, so I thought after church, let's go to PetSmart. And if there's a cat available, that'll be God's way of saying, buy this cat. So we, uh, yeah, we got some cat people here. Okay, pray for them. Uh, now, we got PetSmart, picked out this perfect cat. The kids loved it, brought it home. And so that's what I surprised Savannah with later that night. Hey, look at this new cat. And boy, she, she really loved me from that moment on, you know. And hey, you just couldn't, it was on the side of the road. I was about to hit it. I mean, I had to take it in. That's what God did to us, right? You know, uh, <clears throat> so now we have two dogs and, and two cats, okay? At one point in time, having one dog was enough, all right? But then we needed one dog, one cat, and then about two Christmases ago, I was begging for a puppy, and so now we have two dogs, one cat, now we have two dogs and two cats, and, and now, just two weeks ago, my, my kids are wanting a third dog, okay? And I'm all for it, but Savannah's not for some reason, I don't know why. And it just illustrates, though, from a young age, we want more, we want more. Okay, I've got it, but, but you know what? Now, now on to the next thing. Doesn't that describe a lot of our stories? And, and it's probably not a pet for you, but it's something different. More is never enough. The dissatisfaction we experience when we get more reveals our need for something greater to fill us. Now, we don't know why the woman at the well had so many husbands, but, but she's empty and she's searching. She's wanting something better. And Jesus brought up her long list of husbands because her pattern of trying to find value in men was the one thing that was standing between her and God. You see, her desires had defined her. You see, feeling love had become so important to her that she was willing to do whatever it took to achieve love. One night stand, sure. Having a conversation with that guy at the gym because he actually noticed me and you know made me feel valued because my husband hadn't been doing that for a long time and, and then I ended up sleeping with it. If that's what it takes, sure. Having an account on Tinder so I can swipe right, yeah, I'm in. And yet each time, each man that, that she had a relationship with, she realized that, that she was emptier than, than ever before. You see, her problem was that love had become an idol in her life. And the moment we allow our wants and desires to determine our happiness and joy in life, we become guilty of idolatry, and that's precisely the place where we end up in a place of insecurities. Maybe for you, okay, you want really good kids. That's a great and noble thing to want, but why is it that you maybe feel like a failure when your kids bring home a report card that's less than stellar? Is it possible that your desire for something good has become an idol? 
Or maybe, you know, you want to provide for your family. You want to have a comfortable life for your kids, and, and that's great and noble, and, and you want to work long hours at the office. You know what? That is one great way to bring the next life to this life, to, to better the office environment so that people around you's lives can get better and for you to do your work with excellence. But, but why is it that you maybe spiraled into a pit of depression when you didn't get the promotion? Your boss overlooked you. Why is that? Well, maybe because your desire has all of a sudden become your idol, and your idol, whether you like it or not, determines your identity, and so you're in this place of, of insecurity. And so Jesus does something really significant in this moment that, that often gets overlooked. Evidently, this woman had five ex-husbands, and she's sleeping with number six, okay? Keep that in mind. Skip down to verse 25, because Jesus is going to get at something really important here. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared... I, the one speaking to you, I'm he. I'm I'm who you're looking for. And so Jesus was saying right here in this moment, okay, let me be number seven for you. Let me be number seven. The first six obviously didn't work out too well. Okay, you didn't know it at the time, but every time you stood at the altar, you went on that blind date, or you signed up for eHarmony, you were searching for a level of fulfillment that can only be found in me. And so here I am. Last week, we looked at the significance of the number seven all throughout scripture. Seven symbolizes wholeness and perfection. It, it represents uh, completeness, okay? And so the number seven is symbolic in this moment to this woman by by Jesus is saying, let me be number seven. I am what you are looking for. I am who can complete you. You're searching for me. You're searching after what only I can offer and and I'm willing to give it to you. I can can be your number seven. We're not certain when precisely the breakthrough happened for this woman, but we do know that things began to click for her. She gets excited. She realizes that this person standing before me is what she has been running after her entire life. She, she learned in this moment, hey, the next life can become available in this life here and now. And so take a look at verse 28 of what she does. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So the people are so stunned. If this woman could experience change and transformation, that means it's possible for any of us. Do you know that person? All right, so they came out of town and they made their way toward him. Jesus knew everything about her. Even when religion had rejected her, Jesus demonstrates the simple gospel means outsiders can become insiders. It's possible. And so the question is, what are we called to do about it today? How does this maybe call us to action with where we are in 2018? Well, here's one challenge I want to give you as we wrap up. I see the person before the problem. See the person before the problem. You see, Jesus was really brilliant at knowing his audience, okay? The way he spoke to Nicodemus, Nicodemus was vastly different than how he spoke to the woman at the well. All right, he was always rather harsh and confrontational and very upfront with the religious leaders because he knew that directness was what was required to break through the pride of the religious leaders. One of the most frequent titles that Jesus gave the Pharisees back in the first century was, was this title, hypocrite. Now, this was a, a name that the uh, ancient Greeks had come up with for actors on stage who were fulfilling a role behind a mask. Now, what's interesting is that when we take that word in the Greek and we translate it to the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word translated means, it means godless, and so the question is this, what in the world were these guys doing? for Jesus to get to this point of referring to them as godless actors. Look at Matthew 23. 
Jesus said, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And so Jesus' issue with them came down to this. They built walls rather than bridges for outsiders to become insiders. They had been placed in this position of of authority for for the sole purpose of decreasing people's resistance who were trying to find God. They expected outsiders to live like insiders when they were still outsiders. It didn't make sense. And yet over time, it had become this show where people just walked around impressed with their religious superiority, where people just applauded them for all that they did, all that they, how they obeyed. And yet they justified their behavior as men who were called to uphold the standard. You know, they were the moral example. They were there to to hold the Jewish people accountable. And so when they saw people, they got to this place where they didn't see people any longer. They saw problems. They saw sin. They saw messiness. And Jesus had little patience for this. He had little patience for this because he came to establish a kingdom full of people who had been held down by their problems. And so one thing that you and I have to continually remind ourselves of is that Jesus doesn't, he doesn't see us for what we've done. He sees us for who we can become. Jesus doesn't see you as a disappointment. No, he sees your potential. He doesn't hold your past against you. And so The question is this, how are you doing it relating to others? You know, we're really passionate here at Crossroads at doing whatever it takes to to eliminate any and all unnecessary obstacles that people have when they walk in here into the simple gospel. We we wanna, you know, deconstruct any barrier that uh, that people have to seeing Jesus. All right, that's one thing for us as a church to do this, but let's get a little bit more personal with this, okay? Do your neighbors, would they say, you see them as a person or you see them as a problem? The guy who sits beside you in your cubicle at work, would he say, yeah, she sees me as an inconvenience rather than a valuable person who's been made in the image of God? If I were to sit your stepchildren down, would, would they say, no, my, my stepdad, my stepmom, they, they treat me with value, they treat me with worth, that they help me see who I'm becoming? Or would they say, nope, They see me as nothing but a disappointment. They see me as an inconvenience. They see me as a problem. How about this, okay? How would your mom and dad say that you treat them? Are you honoring them? Are you going out of your way to show them how how they are a person worthy of honor? Or do they feel like I'm an inconvenience in his or her life? What would your grandparents say? Would your grandparents say to that person, I'm I'm a problem. To my grandkid, I'm I'm a problem. I'm, I'm not just a person. And you see, the thing is this, when we start to see people as problems rather than the people who they really are, we're the ones with the problem, right? And so when Jesus sees you, he doesn't see a problem. He sees a person made in his image. And so what would change? What would change if you started to see yourself for how Jesus sees you? Number two, experiencing the next life in this life calls us to identify the need beneath the want Identify the need beneath one. All right, you can apply this to your own life. You can apply this to maybe the life of somebody who's hard to get along with. I mean, regardless of who it is that we're talking about, beneath every desire and want that we have is an unmet need, right? The Samaritan woman thought that the solution for uh, after her first divorce was to just find another man. And this repeated itself six different times until she finally discovered the need that, that she, the, the, the need she had 
wasn't, wasn't being met by these men. Instead, she had this encounter with Jesus where, where she walked away fulfilled. All right, she needed unconditional love. And so in her past, she was willing to do whatever it took to get that love. Evidently, she settled for filling temporary wants instead of searching for what she ultimately needed. All right, this past week, uh, all three of my kids have had uh, an ear infection and uh, they've been in a lot of pain. And so I learned early on that about the only thing that was gonna bring them relief or bring about relief in our home in general was, was a bubble bath, okay? But I gotta tell you, my uh, sense of peace and serenity was quickly interrupted when my wife would bang on the door asking me to get out of the bath and come and help her put the kids to bed. We started giving our kids Tylenol to help with the pain. That helped for a little bit, but after it worn off, it was back to pain again, right? Pain in my right side of the ear. And, and so we called our pediatrician and, and she ended up putting our kids on uh, some antibiotics and uh, it took away the pain rather quickly. Now here's the thing. Tylenol, you know this, Tylenol only treats the symptom. Tylenol only treats the, the, the problem that is manifested. It doesn't really treat the, the issue. It doesn't really treat the, the sickness or illness. That's what antibiotics are for, right? Tylenol was never designed to, to take care of an ear infection. It only takes care of the pain. And so when we walk around life with, with these unmet desires and these wants that, that often go uh, unfilled, it, it's not really the issue. No, the issue is, there's a deeper problem, there's a deeper issue at play, and there's a need that hasn't been fulfilled. And so what if when we have once in life, we just were to take a step back and, and ask ourselves, why do I have this one? Why do I have this desire? What's the root issue here? A couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine called me and just was talking to me about a battle that he's had with porn lately, and he, he, was, he was just disgusted with himself and he said, you know, Patrick, here's something really interesting. This caught my attention. He said, I've noticed certain triggers for me when, when I'm most susceptible to looking at porn. He said, when I feel disrespected at work and I feel rejected by my wife or, or a friend or, or your kids, uh, that, that's when this desire for something that, that I know isn't good for me long-term, that, that's when I'm most open to this desire. That, that's my trigger. And we've all got triggers for certain unhealthy desires and, that we have in life, right? And so maybe how have you confused a want for, for a need? Here's the thing, we will always fail to achieve our desires if meeting our desires is what we're aiming for in life. David Foster uh, Wallace was an accomplished award-winning novelist. He, he gave a rather renowned commencement speech in 2005 at Kenyon uh, College. He has since died. I'm gonna pull up on the screen here a portion of his speech. Understand, he's not a Christian, okay? He, he's rejected Jesus, and yet here's what he said in his speech. He said, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel like you have enough. It, it's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And so Jesus told this woman at the well, I'm this living water that, that you're ultimately looking for. Only me, only me can satisfy only I can quench this thirst that is deep within you. That leads us to our last challenge. It goes like this. Leave your bucket behind. 
What in the world am I talking about? Well, interestingly enough, in verse 28, John gives us this little detail of after she has this moment realizing who Jesus is, she runs to town, she leaves her bucket behind at the well. Now, this was absolutely unheard of because what that bucket represented, it, it represented everything that she had lived for in her past. That, that bucket, it, it symbolized her shame. That bucket represented the emptiness that she had experienced before she bumped into Jesus. That bucket, it, it represented the, the long list of, of divorce papers at home, uh, of failed marriages. That, that bucket, it represented her sin, but then she bumped into Jesus and, and she started living a better way. She started, she started finding true significance and value. That bucket, it represented this, this new life that she was going to begin living. And you know what? The only way that she had the ability and the power to leave that bucket behind was because of the experience that she had with Jesus. And I don't know what your bucket is today, but we've all got them, right? Naomi Zacharias has done international relief work in some of the worst and broken areas of our world. And a book that she wrote last year, The Scent of Water. She, she tells the story of a young girl named Annie who worked as a prostitute in the red light district of Amsterdam. Annie had been objectified and abused by so many, so many men in her past. For, it had gone on for, for several years. And, and Zachariah said that, that it wasn't too long into their first initial conversation that, that Annie stumbled into discussing her spiritual beliefs, which Zacharias described as a blend between Christianity, Buddhism, and, and some other conclusions that she had arrived at in life. Annie told Zachariah, she said, you know, I, I believe in God. I pray to him every night. When I sit in the shower and I try to wash away this dirty feeling, I, 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 pr I pray that he's there. See, Annie was only 19 years old. Can you believe that? Originally from Singapore, she moved to Amsterdam to start a life with her new husband. And, and when they arrived in Amsterdam, unbeknownst to her, he sold her into the sex slavery industry. He married her out of greed. Her, her husband held her passport and license so that she could never return back home to, to Singapore. She couldn't communicate with her family. She had cut off all ties, uh, which wasn't in her control. Annie couldn't help but just feel lost and wonder, is anybody gonna save me? Am I ever gonna be rescued? I, I just feel overlooked. And, and for six years, for six years into her life as a prostitute, Annie learned that her mom, her mom had died. And she wasn't there for, for the funeral. Well, this only fueled her anger whenever she found this out for the first time. So one morning she woke up and Annie went out into the driveway and she caught her husband's car on fire and she demanded that he give her back her passport so that she could return home to Singapore. And, and so through some exchanges that happened, he eventually handed it over and, and Annie made the long journey back to, to Singapore to, to meet her family. She hadn't seen them in six years. And, and when Annie arrived home, she explained the story. She, she told them why she had cut off all ties, why just out of nowhere, they couldn't hear from her. And they didn't, res they didn't respond with sorrow or compassion. Zachariah said that they did not wrap their arms around her to shield her against the pain that, that, they had, that had been inflicted upon her. Her family essentially disowned her. You see, working in prostitution disgraced the family name regardless of how or, or why she ended up there. Annie explained that being rejected by my family was the worst kind of pain I've ever experienced in my entire life. And so she didn't know what else to do at that moment. And so she returned to Amsterdam and, and that's, that's where she believed she belonged. She told Zacharias, look, prostitution is who I am. And I, I am a prostitute. I'll never be anything more than that. And so knowing that Zacharias was a Christian, Annie then asked her this, 
Well, let me ask you, if I were to walk into your church, would the people at your church, would they see me as a woman or would they see me as a prostitute? Zacharias didn't know how to respond. She was afraid of the real true answer. Eventually her, her friend spoke up and said to Annie, you know what, Annie? Some would probably see you as a prostitute, but they would be wrong. That's not how Jesus sees you. Annie then shot back, she said, no. She said, the problem with your people is this. They tell me that I should leave, but they never wanna let me forget where I've come from either. And I think the one thing that keeps us from leaving, from leaving our buckets behind is not forgetting where we've come from. Does that describe you? Are you reminded of who you were so much to a point where it, it's almost impossible for you to not pick up that bucket that you just, you just have trained yourself to continue to pick up time and time again. What, what bucket do you need to leave behind today? What sin do you, do you need to repent of? What, what sin do you need to turn from in your life and say, okay, I'm no longer gonna, gonna live in this regard. I, I'm no longer gonna think this way. I'm no longer gonna do this. I'm gonna vote. And Jesus, I, I'm counting on you to show me a better way. So what, what is your bucket? Is your bucket selfishness? Is your bucket pride? Is your bucket religious superiority where you think you're better than another Christian because of obedience? Is, is your bucket an addiction? Is your bucket greed? Is your bucket lust? Is your bucket, maybe you've lacked forgiveness towards somebody because of how they hurt you. It's anger. What is your bucket? And you see, the only way for you to be able to actually leave your bucket behind is for you to have a real encounter with Jesus Christ. So maybe that's what you need to do today. Here in just a second, I'm gonna pray and we're gonna be dismissed. And, and when we all leave this room here in at West, I want you to remain seated. If you wanna know what this looks like to, to leave my bucket behind and, and you need help with this, some section hosts will make their way towards you. All right, these are just volunteers we have that, that would love to come alongside you, pray with you and, and say, hey, you are not alone in this because again, the only way that you can leave your bucket behind is by keeping your eyes on Jesus and having this encounter with who he really is. And that's what many of you need to do today. Don't put it off any longer. Let's pray. God, all of our buckets look different. I know what mine is. You know what all of ours are. And each bucket represents how we've had this desire, we've had this way of living life and we've been aiming for this target. And yet when we look down, we realize emptiness is all we've gotten. Jesus, you, you are the living water who can quench us. And some of us, we struggle to understand what that really means. I get that. But would you show us, would you teach us what it really looks like to be found in you, to be satisfied by you and you alone. Empower us to leave our buckets behind this week as we look to you and we put our sin, we put our former life behind us. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.